You're listening to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we react to the news that Leeds sacked their manager, Jesse Marsh. Have they got a plan for what's next? Were they slightly panicked by results and gone a little bit too soon? We'll also react to Leeds' draw with Manchester United, a two-all at Old Trafford. We'll be talking about Manchester City and the many allegations lodged against them by the Premier League, in particular the timing and what it might mean when compared to an independent regulator in football. We'll talk about a huge game for Nathan Jones, a Southampton boss, as they host Wolves this weekend. What would it mean for his future if they are beaten? And other big games to come in the Premier League. Arsenal against Brentford, West Ham against Chelsea and the Merseyside Derby. This is the game. Hello, welcome back to the game podcast. I am Hugh Wizencroft alongside Gregor Robertson, Tom Clark and Jonathan Northcroft. Loads to react to and to look ahead to in terms of the live football in the Premier League. But we did get one piece of news in the dugouts this week. Leeds sacking their manager Jesse Marsh after less than a year in charge. They lost 1-0 to Nottingham Forest on Sunday. That was his final match in charge. Their seventh Premier League game without a win it was. And it left them at the time 17th in the table above the relegation on goal difference alone. They'd last won on the 5th of November in the league. Um, Leeds finished 17th last season after Marsh succeeded Marcelo Bielsa last February. So before we get to their game against Manchester United that has changed things only slightly in the table, let's react to Marsh's sacking, which I personally didn't see coming. I know in the last podcast I basically said, you know, they'll, they'll play Man United twice, almost alluding to the fact that you wouldn't judge the manager on those two games and then you would have to judge him on massive games against Everton and Southampton, he didn't get those four matches, which I actually thought he would. And this news kind of took me by surprise, Johnny. What was your reaction to it? It did take me by surprise. Um, I was I was up at Leeds last week, actually, for, for a piece uh, and, and at Jesse Marsh's Friday press conference. He's always a very positive character, but, you know, he was he was in hyper sort of optimistic mode and saying that although results hadn't been great, he felt, as he said it, I finally got the team where... I want them. Training's incredible. Uh, the results are going to come. And there's no feeling around the club that a change was imminent. I mean, you knew that this optimism didn't really marry up with the reality of what seemed to be happening on the pitch. But that said, the the, the vibes were just that, you know, there's been a commitment to, to Marsh, a commitment to this plan. The plan is starting to come good. He was allowed to bring in Weston McKenney um, and, and allowed to bring in Chris Armas. Um, and that felt like a strengthening of his regime. So for things to go south so quickly for him um, is a surprise. But I guess a couple of factors that the, the fans, I think, had, had gone um, and, and they reacted against him during the defeat at Forest. So it, it would appear that Victor Orta and, and Andrea Radzayani took notice of that. And then I, I just think sometimes what happens to the teams around you sort of strengthens or concentrates minds in the boardroom. And I think the weekend was was very worrying from a Leeds point of view with with Everton getting back off the floor under Dyche with Leicester pulling a result out of the bag. And suddenly those kind of assumptions that, that there might be other teams in similar trouble falling away. So they acted very quickly. And I think you can tell that maybe Leeds acted quicker than they wanted to by the very fact that there hasn't really been uh, a neat succession. And and this is a club that's always prided itself on forward planning. Victor Orta 
sporting director is supposed to be a genius at all these things and, and he has somebody ready to slot in whether it's a player or a coach when the change is made but that hasn't been the case this time and that tells you that a club's been caught on the hop a little bit. Gregor, what did you make of it? Yeah, I think that Johnny's last point there about uh, Victor Orta and <laughs> supposed to be a genius, I think there's, there's a, it's quite valid to call into question their judgment. If I was a Leeds fan personally, I would be hoping the day that Andrea Rajazani and, and Orta are no longer sort of in charge comes come sooner rather than later. I don't think the rec- I think the recruitment has been improved since since last summer. I think Johnny's right. I think that um, Jesse Marsh's you know his team has been strengthened, and that's why I said after the kind of January transfer window shut that he's running out of excuses not to not to you know enact a a considerable improvement and in results. But I think when you go back and look at even their their appointments, uh, Christensen, Heckenbottom, you could argue Heckenbottom was the wrong wrong man at the wrong club at the wrong time and he's obviously doing well at Sheffield United now Bielsa was a complete shot in the dark and it, it came off and Marsh now I don't I, I think when you combine that and you look at the recruitment of players I don't think I think their judgement is definitely up for debate but on, on Marsh as you said he took over they were 16th they kept them up by the skin of their teeth I was there at Brentford on the final day and it was skin of the teeth stuff uh, and again you saw Radrazani and Orta hearing onto the pitch and celebrating wildly with the fans which was you know, a bit ironic, I thought. And he's left with them in 17th place. And so he's ultimately not won enough games. I think he's won, he won eight of 32 league games. There's holes in the team. that Again, this comes back to the, the people at the top. There's huge holes in the team that have just never been filled. I think still at centre-half. They're woefully short. Although Rodrigo stepped up to the plate this year, if Bamford's not fit, they're woefully short up front too. Wilfried uh, Gnonto looks like he's going to be a star. He's a kind of a bit of an outlier, but... There are a whole. There've been holes in that team, and as I say, it's been improved since the summer. But what Marsh had to work with is uh, certainly not been perfect. Um, and I think we have to also acknowledge that he was always he was always facing a really big challenge. A because of the man he replaced and the standing he he was held in by lead supporters and uh, Bielsa, and B because he's American. I think we can <laughs> we we can skirt over that fact. It, and we can talk about whether it's right or wrong, but it's true. His Americanisms, frequent kind of reference of Ted Lasso and anyone, just a, 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 a quicker willingness to say that he's he's clueless or out of his depth. I think that was partly related to the fact that he's American. I'm not sure that's saying that's right at all, but I don't think we should skirt over that. I think that's definitely part of the reason that patience wore out much quicker with him. There is a part of me that thinks 17th, 17th, last season 17th at the moment would Leeds fans take finishing 17th this season I think at this point they probably would but um you you wonder what the goal was you wonder what level was expected from this Leeds United team under Jesse Mars this season because it's Leeds United yes but we're still talking about a team that again I, I've always said it you know it takes what five seasons I think to consolidate a place in the in the top flight and even then you know, you talk about some teams who've had long stays in the top flight and, uh, you know, relegation isn't that far away, to be perfectly honest. Every year is about survival and Leeds United are still in that mindset. Jesse Marsh, his Americanisms, I totally agree with you on that one, Gregor. Yeah, I was listening to his interview at the end of the last game and he said, we just couldn't get the final play. And I thought, yeah, these are the things that probably do count against Jesse Marsh. Wrongly so, in my opinion, and I've spoken, we've spoken previously about xenophobia in sport in general. 
in football as well. And, and I agree with you, though. I, I, I still think it did count against Jesse Marsh in the end. It, Leeds need to look forward. They need to look forward very soon. I don't want to blame any of those things for his dismissal because ultimately is it, it's a results business. They weren't getting wins. Teams around them, Leicester, you mentioned, Johnny. Uh, Nottingham Forest starting to get results. You know, the change made at Everton, seeing a, a media and quite radical result in terms of where Everton have been. Um, you know, all of these things, I think, counted against Marsh. And I, I just think it was, again, I'm not saying he shouldn't have been sacked, but I think... Had he been given the next few games, maybe it would have given them the best opportunity, but maybe I'm being unfair. Um, but listen, last night they put out a fantastic performance against Manchester United. For, for most of the game, I wasn't overly happy with how they defended in the second half, particularly with a two-goal lead. We'll dissect that. But they are now a point above the drop zone, thanks to that two-all draw with the rivals Manchester United at Old Trafford. Wilfred Nonto... First minute goal. Um, he's got an eye for the spectacular. Um, he's he's a difficult player to stop at his best, um, and he looks like he's got a really incredible future, Tom. Yeah, definitely. It was a it was a bit of an old school '90s Premiership match, wasn't it? All that was missing was a kind of mitre ball and a bit more mud and some baggier shorts. I thought, um, and and he for me is a bit of a throwback kind of player. A bit, um, you know, all the unexpected tricks, turns. Um, and just incredibly exciting to watch. You know, he doesn't fit into necessarily the kind of modern player of box ticking. Um, he's just really thrilling and fun to watch whenever I've seen him this season. Uh, so he is, as Gregor mentioned before, a real bright spark for Leeds. But, I mean, in lots of ways, this performance from Leeds kind of epitomises what they've been about in the Premier League. You know, they sack a manager, they go away to one of the form teams this season, one of the form teams of the moment. Um, and probably should have won, could have won, certainly. But it's that kind of slightly fevered, slightly desperate nature of the way they perform on the pitch, which is also mirrored in their actions off the pitch. You know, some of the points you guys have made there were really interesting. Hugh, you mentioned about consolidation. Um, you know, you think about change of managers, makes me think slightly back to, you know, and you guys talking about being in 17th, makes me think slightly of those years of Sunderland where, they would chop and change manager every season and then just about stay in the league over and over again. It doesn't feel like there's a big plan. You know, they got to the Premier League with Bielsa and then it was like, okay, well, what's the what's the big plan? But, you know, it, it's great fun on the pitch when it when it comes off because it produces matches like, uh, like, like, like last night against Manchester United. But I would say, you know, Nonto is not enough for them to be excited about. There's a lot more problems. And as you say, Hugh, conceding the two-goal lead will be a massive worry for whoever the manager is coming in. Because it, do, and it And that's the other thing. As Johnny says, it doesn't seem like there's a cohesive plan or approach to what comes next. There were positives, though, Johnny, despite the fact that they gave away that two-goal lead. Um, and we can also reflect, I guess, on, on Manchester United coming back from two goals down. Jadon Sancho uh, back in the squad for the past two games. He had three months out, reports physical and mental health issues as well. Scored his first Premier League goal since the 1st of September. He could be important for Manchester United if he's fit and firing. Sancho's return is, is such a welcome um, aspect, not, not just from a Man United narrow point of view, but I guess from a human point of view, because this is a, a young player who's had a, a lot of pressure on him, um, has, has, has made a big move and, and, and has sort of, you know, suffered. We're not quite sure exactly what but certainly some kind of personal um crisis as a result um and 
I think Manchester United have handled them extremely well um, from a sort of duty of care point of view, given him time and space. He scored a brilliant goal last night. He looked, yeah, and, and actually when he came back at the weekend, looked different in terms of, of his, his mood and demeanour. And that's brilliant from a human point of view. And of course, it's great from an England point of view, because this is a real talent that, that if he can be sort of reactivated is, is a boost for everyone. So that, that was a really good news point of the, the game. I, I think United have stumbled a little bit recently and, and will will be cursing themselves for that because Manchester City's defeat at the weekend actually opened up a little bit of a chance to to close in on them. So it was a kind of odd night for United. Um, and, you know, Leeds, just to quickly go back to Leeds, it's, we've been talking about plans. I think that's a key thing that... I think there is there are plans at Leeds. It's just that they don't fit together. So you talk about Nonto, brilliant signing, but a kid, 18 years old. I think Leeds' plan is to invest in that sort of future talent. And you saw them do it in the transfer window, bringing in Ruta for 35 million. Another young player who's only scored like 10 goals in his in his career, but huge money. Contrast that with Leicester bringing in Tete, a more sort of proven operator, immediately making an impact. Um, and, and, you know, Leicester focused and now on doing something to stay in the Premier League. Leeds still seem to be caught between, on the one hand, oh no, we need to try and do something to stay in the Premier League. But on the other hand, we're still going to follow this sort of invest for the future kind of idea. And I think it's not the lack of a plan. It's, it's, it's conflicting plans that aren't really coming together for that football club at the moment. And they ha- I think they need to, to work out that balance between surviving in the league and building um, a squad on, on, on a limited budget that, that can sort of grow in value. And, and they, you know, Brighton have classically done that so brilliantly, but Leeds are, are miles away from squaring that circle at the moment. Also, just to make it kind of explicit, I was alluded to earlier, Leeds have, have sold 44% of their shares to the owners of the San Francisco 49ers. And they, there's, Due to a complete a takeover in uh, in 2024, but it might be sooner. So the kind of if we're talking about their desperation to stay in the Premier League is to kind of maintain the value of that asset as well. Uh, you know that's true of everyone, but it's it possibly slightly heightened but because of this deal as well. I just think it it kind of smacked a panic. We, we've we mentioned Chris Armas as well. He came in 13 days before they sacked Marsh. Like that sounds to me pretty much like an impulsive decision. You know they might be in doubts and it might have. The last couple of results might have pushed them over the edge, but it's still an impulsive decision. And as I say, I, I, I think Victor Orta is an impulsive character. We saw that in the documentary. We've seen it. We see it in the stands. We've seen it. We've seen it many times. And as I say, that's why I say I think the sooner that deals move to completion, the better. If I was a Leeds fan, I've kind of intermixed conversation about Leeds United and Manchester United throughout. To be perfectly honest, um, clearly we should have reflected more on this sacking of Jesse Marsh. Maybe I was uh, taken a bit by events at Old Trafford a little bit last night, but um, you were right to yeah, you. You were right to. It was a great fun game. There's <laughs> loads of things to mention. There was loads of things to mention. I mean, I've got loads of little points here. I think you know Garnacho. Do you not think he deserves praise for not going down under that Melier challenge when he comes flying out trying to score? Thought that was incredibly refreshing to see. Got Marcus Rashford adding heading go- headed goals to his game. We had Man United putting together probably the worst defensive wall from a free kick in Premier League history for that Aronson free kick that went through the wall and hit the post. Could you imagine the punditry? Uh, I would love to know what Gregor thought of that wall that just kind of 
broke apart and like, oh no, I don't, oh, oh, there's the ball. Sorry. I mean, there's loads going on. And that's why, as I said earlier, as much as it is fascinating to talk about leads in the wider scheme of things, this was, as as they so often say on uh, Twitter and slightly sarcastically, a proper Barclays thriller, wasn't it? You know, it was great, great fun. And leads have been involved in so many of them. Like, that's the thing to say. This has always been, one thing about Marsh was it wasn't boring. It was never boring, and he was always he did kind of continue the the BLs of full throttle football, but he didn't get rid of the brittleness as well. That's what he was he brought in to move them forward, and he he just didn't do that. So I think ultimately that was that's why he's gone. Can I just ask on that because I think it's a really interesting point about boring because we were talking the last the last time I was on the pod we were talking about Everton managers, and I was obviously um, saying how much I thought they'd be absolutely desperately lucky to get Sean Dyche which obviously they did but I was reflecting on a friend of mine who was an Everton fan and who was talking at the time about um, Bielsa and saying oh you know I quite fancy Bielsa because it would just be exciting and I wonder whether you know we talked about the fans Leeds fans playing a part in this sacking and whether maybe after the excitement of Bielsa's promotion and the excitement of the you know staying in the league maybe are they ready for boring I don't know I don't know I don't know whether any team any fans of any team in the league want boring or are prepared to accept inverted commas boring with that kind of boring element in mind do any of you think that that's part of it you know we said Leeds fans were key to this kind of sacking that we got the sense that they'd maybe had enough and Gregor you talked about how exciting Leeds are in these matches and they play a big part in making this great spectacle in these big Premier League games that are televised or at the weekend but do you think maybe they've you know, Leeds fans have had enough as much as we enjoy it. Maybe they're ready for a bit of boring or something a bit Sean Dyche-esque. I don't think they would be against that. I think as long as there was the same level of energy and sort of commitment and, you know, combat, if that's the right word, because that's what Leeds have shown almost in, since Beals has been there. It's been so in your face, <laughs> so kind of, as I say, front foot, uh, you know, high pressing, high energy, high intensity, all those things. That's very modern football, but I think if, as long as it was married with, with that, it doesn't have to be beautiful, free-flowing football, I think. They would like to see some wins now and a bit less anxiety. I think, uh, for me personally, I think football, particularly in the Premier League, has just gone to a point where you need to score goals and fans almost expect that as a way to survive. I mean, you, you need wins, essentially. You know, you, you might be talking about a relegation battle if a team sort of draws four matches out of five. You're kind of saying, oh, fantastic. You know, they're starting to, to pull away because teams were just losing every week and it just doesn't happen in the Premier League anymore. Um, you need to sort of win matches, one in three, something like that, to have a half-decent season. At least in terms of points, you need to sort of kind of average that. And a uh, point per game just doesn't come. If you, if, you, if you lose pretty much every week, it's a bit like... Um, some American sports, like the NFL, became like a quarterback touchdown scoring league basically every single week. Like, And that's all fans want to see. And that means that defences are kind of less important. The same thing happened in basketball in the States. And now people score many more points. And it just feels like if you can't attack, if you can't score goals, you haven't got a chance in this league. You know, keeping things tight is good. And I think it's taken even sort of sporting directors and chairman of football clubs to realise that a manager like Sean Dyche is needed, you know, in the Premier League and it doesn't have to be trying to outscore your opposition and playing really open every week. And I was, you know, having arguments with mates last night because I was like, why are Leeds at two goals up 
so open? Why are Manchester United able to find spaces to pass through them? And I was thinking about the, I don't know if you saw the video of Sean Dyche talking through his tactics. Um, I think it was the coach's voice, but he's basically saying, you know, we protect this V in front of the goal. Basically, the penalty area, we get really narrow. You know, this is how I want my teams to play. You know, anything that comes in that area, there, there shouldn't be any spaces. Um, and we kind of lead out from the penalty area in terms of that. And I was just watching Leeds thinking, oh, if they were just employing this tactic of Daesh, they probably win this match. And yeah, it would have been a struggle. You would have had to fight for everything to hold on for a two-goal lead. But you had a two-goal lead. And... You know, they allowed Manchester United to play, which I thought was silly, but ultimately probably what Marsh would have done. You know, I didn't see anything last night and think, oh, they're so different to Jesse Marsh. Like, I, I thought, well, they, they, okay, apart from scoring a couple of goals and going 2-0 up, I guess, because they haven't really found the net enough. But in terms of their defence, you know, there were there were holes. You know, there were spaces. There were uh, the, the ability to, to attack against them with relative ease was there for Manchester United. And I'm... Um, I think a lot of people in that second half expected them to go on and win, really. So it, it turns into a valuable point, but could have easily been three had they defended better in that second half. So anyway, uh, let's move on, all right? That's enough on Leeds United. I'm sure we'll have more on them when they appoint a new manager. It's being reported today that Arnie Slot uh, could be their new manager. Uh, he's the Feyenoord boss at the moment, strongly linked with the job, 44 years old. He's got them at the top of the Eredivisie, just one defeat so far this season, had a great run to the Europa Conference League final last season as well. So we'll see what kind of manager leads a point next up. Well, it's reported in the Times today that the Premier League's disciplinary case against Manchester City is likely to take between two and four years to be completed. Well, that's according to one of Britain's leading sports lawyers, Nick DeMarco KC. The Premier League announced on its website on Monday the club were charged with breaching 115 different regulations over 14 years from 2009-10 to this season. In that case, I think we're going to have a lot of time to think about the potential ramifications for Manchester City. But as we talk today, Johnny, I wanted to ask you about the Premier League's intent here, because some have argued that they are trying to show the government that they can govern football with the possibility of an independent regulator on the horizon. Does that mean that we will maybe see them go for the harshest, sternest punishments for Manchester City? How do you see this um, working its way through the system, if you like. The timing um, clearly does raise that question. Why, after four years of, of, of start, starting to look into it, why exactly now? Is it a coincidence that it's in the, the, the very week that an independent regulator was supposed to assume some sort of control? I, I don't know. That question strikes me like a lot around this subject as being um, open to conspiracy theories and... Um, in the realms of, of a kind of side debate. And there's so much side debate in this issue. There's a side debate as to, you know, is it right for new money to come into the Premier League? You know, there's a side debate of, is this the big six clubs trying to quash uh, a, a newcomer to the party? Um, you know, there's, 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 sort of, there's sort of so much paranoia and, and, and kind of debate around the margins. And it just strikes me that every time we talk about something like this, we move away from talking about the issue, uh, the keep the issue that will be decided ultimately, which is has a club broken rules that 
they have themselves signed up to. That That is actually the only issue here, but it's deeply unsatisfactory that it took this long uh, for the charges to be laid. And it's unsatisfactory that it happened in this week of all weeks. Um, and then that's on the Premier League. You know, they've, they've muddied the waters themselves by the timing of this. Um, I think the only thing we know for certain is, as reported in the Times, that this will drag on and on and on. And the longer it drags on, the more of the side debate that we'll have. And I think the less satisfactory the outcome will be for everybody. I think that, I, you know, I personally feel exhausted by the subject already. I felt exhausted by the UEFA case and, and the CAS appeal to the point where you almost sort of, you just lose sight of <laughs> what's at stake. Um, and how often do we end up talking about football governance in these terms that, you know, you, forget Manchester City, just governance in general, fit and proper persons, the hosting of World Cups, blah, blah, blah. It is just, the game is just not governed in, in a way that meets the reality of, of what's a fast-moving um, world sort of focused, exciting sport, you know, behind it, we've just got slow governance, unsatisfactory, opaque procedures. And I, I can already say that whatever happens, nobody's going to be satisfied with the outcome, wherever this goes. And what is going to be 2027 or something before we know. What's your view, Gregor? The fact is that these are the rules, they exist. And if you're a billionaire owner, a nation state, <laughs> Uh, and you think they're wrong, then make make the case, challenge the challenge those rules, or beat it. Because it was the same when in in the previous cases, it just smacked of like such entitlement of the view that money can buy can buy anything, everything, the moon, the stars, whatever you want. You can just you can circumnavigate the rules if you've got enough money. Ultimately, it boils down to whether Manchester City broke these rules or not. And, you know, we, we can all have our view and we can talk about what the punishments will be later. But that, first of all, needs to be proven, like, without doubt, uh, after any appeals. We've got to remember how kind of narrow the, you know, narrowly they got they got off the last time. It was a two-to-one majority uh, at CAS that decided that some of UEFA's claims were time-barred or not established, i.e. not quite enough evidence. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't thrown out. It was just... <laughs> They kind of escape by the skin of their teeth. All the side issues are exactly that. They're side issues. And it's just, I'm the same as Johnny. I just come back to feeling quite depressed by it all. People who are parasites, not parasites in terms of drawing money out of the game, but just sucking the competitive balance. I know it's never been really there, but like the competitive balance, spirit, the sort of, I, I this is the wrong word, but like innocence. <laughs> Football's never been innocent, but it's taken it to whole new kind of stratospheres. It's just, it's so depressing, I think. And again, I agree with Johnny about the, gov- the governance. You know, whether this was timed because of the, foot, the you know, the potential white paper of the independent regulator. We've got to remember that the Premier League is a members' organisation. It's the clubs that we have to come back to that fact, and that you know, it should never be the case that. The other clubs are essentially deciding Manchester City's fate. I, I don't think that you know it, there's too many conflicting interests there. And I know it's not quite as straightforward as that, but that's ultimately what the Premier League is. It's the same as the EFL. It's a it's a group of clubs, a group, 
it's a members organization you know johnny's right about the the kind of fast changing nature of the world and what what is needed to govern a a global spectacle that is football now you know although i i'm supportive of an independent regulator the idea that the government are going to set up a a body that's going to be able to deal with issues like this quickly and decisively again i have no hope of that so again i come back to the fact i'm just really depressed about the state of football's governance and some of the some of the players involved now could be minor things that the independent regulator puts in um which i think might be able to just keep clubs and i'm not talking about manchester city any club um slightly more transparent than they've been previously i think that would be important i don't think they can run the game top to bottom uh through governance and obviously the government will change uh, and if they change the responsible ministers as much as they have been over the last sort of 10 years, um, then that certainly can't be a way of, of running football. I think it's under 18 months in terms of uh, how long ministers keep their position on average. So, you know, you, you can't run a sport like that. And you also need knowledge of the sport, of course, and knowledge of running sports in general to be able to do a job like that at the Premier League. Um We'll see if the independent regulator can do anything. It certainly needs to do some things and then... Maybe they can just keep the sport a little bit more honest. Just to remind everyone, of course, Manchester City deny any wrongdoing. They welcomed these charges, they said, um, because it gave them the opportunity to clear their name once and for all. And we'll see if they can do that uh, in the coming years. Interestingly, sort of fan reaction, some fan reaction uh, was to essentially claim that, well, if the Premier League had it their way, only one of you know, Manchester United, Liverpool and Arsenal would would ever win the title because who on earth would ever be able to compete with them? Which I I found quite a perverse argument from a number of fans because, of course, you are able to become Manchester United from the ground up because Manchester United did it. You're able to become Liverpool um, and you're able to become Arsenal. You just shouldn't be able to do it in the space of one year by one owner who um, allegedly can inflate sponsorship deals so that you're earning more money than you actually do. There has been, you know, this argument that there's no organic way to challenge for the title. Well, there is. It's just taken football clubs decades and decades and decades to get to the point where they are a regular challenger for a title. And, And yes, people say, well, Man United used to spend money, this, that and the other. Yeah, they did, but they're one of the most popular football clubs in the world when they were spending money and they were winning titles every season and earning more money and then spending that money. Arsenal have done the same and even then they found it hard to compete in the new era of spending. And they are, of course, one of the most successful clubs in English football history. But um, it kind of goes against how the world works if you don't think that, uh, you know, I guess maybe I'm... Maybe you would tell me the world works differently now and whoever's got the most money can easily become, you know, have the biggest organisation in the world. But it used to be that if you were popular, if your business was good, people spent money of it on it, you were able to then grow that business, which is kind of how football worked until, I guess, the advent of the Premier League. Um, so I don't think football fans should, should claim that their football club has no hope of reaching this level because they do. It just takes a long long time or at least it should that's how I see it anyway Tom let's go back to talking about Wilfred Nonto I don't like hearing those two Scottish lads really sad like that it's really you know it's really really disheartening back back to back Dulcich Scottish Scottish tones lamenting the end of the foot at the end of the football pyramid as as we know it um 
but unfortunately, I do agree with them. I think uh, you mentioned Hugh fan reaction there, and obviously, I like to kind of bring in things I've read on Twitter and people who've been in touch, but also, you know, my own friends. And I think once you've had the previous Manchester City situation with Cass and then other ones with Chelsea, um, there becomes a cynicism way beyond us journalists who are, you know, uh, born born cynical. Um, the fans themselves start going, well, is anything actually going to happen? Um, you know, I, th- I think I think that's probably where a lot of fans stand now. And until something hugely significant does come back, and if, if it's deemed appropriate, um, then I don't think fans will think that, that this is anything other than kind of gesture politics where, you know, statements get made. It's then we're then told it'll be four years. And the fan, the fans almost move on and forget about it. Um, so I, 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 I'm as much as I would love to fill fill the guys with some uh, positivity and joy, I can't because I agree with most of what they said. That idea that the Man City fans will put out that you know there's a there's an elite in football. They don't want anyone getting in. We've disrupted the elite, and that's why they're trying to slap us down. And that's been stirred up by by forces at the club. I'd have a lot more faith in that argument if Manchester City hadn't tried to join the European Super League. You know that, that suddenly there was an elite going that they fancied being part of and 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 wanted to shut everybody out then. So I don't I don't see them as this crusading anti-elitist force at all. Not when they want to join the European Super League. But that but that just very quickly is again to feed into our previous cynicism and some of the things Gregor said. That is the the fans who are saying that are the fans who remember Manchester City as they used to be before, yo-yoing up and down the football pyramid, having to play no marks like Lincoln City and then ending up in the Premier League and hopefully kind of, you know, being the noisy neighbours. They have then co-opted that into, we've now got money and people don't like it. Whereas the owners saw that fan base and that was principally one of the reasons that, that, you know, they had interest from abroad because they were like, wow, there's this club with huge potential in one of the biggest cities in the country with a massive fan base. Wait, they followed them all the way down to the third tier and they still filled the stadium. That's incredible. So you're right, Johnny, but I would say in defence of some of those fans, they're doing it, I think a lot of them, from a purity of we were always the kind of disruptors and now we're just disruptors with money, whereas actually it's the owners who've manipulated that slightly and have kind of fed on that idea that, yeah, we're just the disruptors and no one likes it. Because as you say, the Super League proves proves that that's a load of rubbish. It's disingenuous. And it's disingenuous. And they wanted to join Project Big Picture as well. They want more They want more of the Premier League revenue to go to, the, to, to themselves and the rest of the big six. So it's disingenuous from the ownership. Maybe not be disingenuous from the fans, but as a football club, as an ownership, Manchester City are just like the other ones in, in the elite, just like the ones that they say they're railing against. I also like... I think there is a valid debate to be had about the view that there's a kind of cartel and it's it's locking anyone out from being able to challenge the the established elite. But we're doing we're doing Manchester City a favour by having that debate just now because it's not it, it's almost irrelevant. The rules are the way that they are, and we have to remember that we have to you know it has to be that has to be a side debate because you can't just do what you want. <laughs> you can't you can't just ignore the rules completely and as I say, circumnavigate them, find them, find ways of inflating your revenue, so you become, you know, one of the suddenly become one of the richest uh, clubs in the world. I, you, your revenues grow very quickly to be among the largest in the world. And then when 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 you're challenged, 
you get tied up in legalese for years and, and try to challenge the authority of governing bodies, uh, as they did with UEFA, and, and I'm sure they would do with, 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 with the Premier League. So clubs are, are getting to the point now where they are challenging the authority of governing bodies, it's like UEFA, like FIFA. They're all challenging each other as well, like the Premier League. So more than anything, it's just a depressing spectacle and a depressing time for football at the, at the highest level. Yeah, it, it depends on how this goes I think um, if there is a strong stance taken who knows if the independent regulator can give us something that a- a- appeals to fans um, you know there may be positive things to come out of this and of course I reiterate uh, Manchester City stress that they've done absolutely nothing wrong and they will clear their name what that would mean for football going forward would be an interesting one as well because I know a lot of people have reacted to this by saying if the Premier League has brought this number of charges and allegations against Manchester City, then their evidence must be compelling and they must see it through right to the end with serious and stern punishment. Um, So we will see, whenever we get there, what exactly uh, would be the outcome of this and what punishments would be delivered. But anyway, Jonathan Northcroft, I appreciate you've got a lot to do today. So thank you very much for joining us. You're on your way to several Premier League football clubs. We'll be looking ahead to a busy weekend uh, in the top flight next. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com So this weekend there is a massive game, massive, massive game for Nathan Jones's future as Southampton boss as they take on Wolves. Saints currently bottom of the Premier League, just 15 points from their 21 games. They've picked up just one win during Jones's seven top-flight matches in charge since he succeeded Ralph Hasenhüttl in the St Mary's hot seat in November. The Sport Republic CEO, the club's owners that is, Rasmus Ankerson, was in front of a Southampton fans forum this week. He said he understands the frustration of their supporters over their current position and with the manager as well. He said, our job is to look at the work that goes on on a day-to-day basis and to make a judgment on whether we think that is of enough quality to achieve what we want to achieve. Um, And the, the fans, I mean, quite interestingly to me, were kind of desperately begging him to fire Nathan Jones, which I actually found to be quite sad. I mean, it's... Often you see football fans, you know, with banners, chants, whatever it might be, you know, booing, voicing their disquiet, if you like, over a manager at a football club. But um, it's rare that you see, you know, a fan look someone in the eye who does actually have the ability to fire the manager and basically say, please, please, please listen to us and fire this man. But that's basically what happened a little bit earlier on this week. And of course, lots has been made of a what Nathan Jones has been saying publicly and how he conducts himself publicly. Um, And the strength of his words, really, has left a number of pundits, a number of us onlookers saying that he's thrown his players under the bus, which I found quite 
strong, to be perfectly honest, because managers do it all the time, don't they, Gregor? Don't they throw their players under the bus all the time? And you know what? Most of the time, it's fine. I mean, hasn't Pep Guardiola been doing that most recently at Manchester City? Hasn't he thrown his players under the bus? You know, I think he has, to be perfectly honest, because he gets asked about several star players every single week, and he kind of alludes to the fact that they haven't got the passion, fire, tenacity, whatever it might be, to start matches in the Premier League, even though most of them are vastly experienced title winners. It's okay for Pep. Surely it's okay for... Nathan Jones? Pep's got a bit more credit in the bank, I think you. <laughs> <laughs> with the club and with the players and with everyone involved, really. So, yeah, but I know what you're there's saying. levels to this. If Absolutely. you're calling out title winners, then he can call out people who, let's be honest, players, mostly inexperienced players that have struggled in the Premier League. Like, he hasn't got world beaters. I, Pep does. I didn't even really see it as throwing them under the bus, that, to be honest, either. It was as self critical as it was, you know as critical of specific individual players or anything like that. It was, he was saying that my approach has to change. And I think it was probably challenging the players to kind of, to recognise that and meet meet the standards and, and what, what he expects. Um, so we'll see how he goes with that. It's clearly not a great atmosphere at, at St Mary's. And, you know, you're right about uh, Ankerson's comments. He's just It's just a reminder how much of a totally process-driven, totally, you know, he's someone who will block out the noise. That's that kind of familiar phrase that, you know, you're reminded of Thomas Frank. I think he lost, what was it, seven out of his first 10 games or something like that. The noise was starting to ramp up, not quite the same to the same degree here, but the noise was starting to ramp up at Brentford and obviously it turned things around. So they they still have belief. It get, will get to a point though. It will get to a point where it's, there's almost a point of no return, and I you know you, we're not that far away from it. I think that the fans have taken a sort of real dislike into to Nathan Jones, and I agree with you. I feel that that's that's unjustified. I think that they just weren't happy with his appointment in the first place. They were they had some serious worries about the club's trajectory in terms of like signing a bunch of kids and you know not not signing a striker that they all knew they desperately needed for so long looking like they were going down and just a bit of kind of atrophy in the final final stages of Ralph Hasenhutl's tenure. So I think all of that combined just made it a really hard a hard job to walk into for Nathan Jones. And, and then you add to that his spiky nature and character. And, and as I say, the, the word fire just keeps coming to mind. He's got fire in every, everything he does, every press conference, every every action on the sidelines, everything he does. And sometimes you think perhaps that they need a bit of calm. He's not called anyone out individually. He's saying that this isn't good enough. I need to be me. I think that's what he was saying. This isn't good enough for the players. I need to be me. And the players are probably going to see that now. And so I would be expecting, I would have expected to see a reaction. And I would have been trying to give him a reaction in training this week. And we'll see what see what they do this weekend. Because they, ha- I mean... They have to get a win soon, not just for Nathan Jones, but you know we've talked about how how close and concertina that is at the bottom. It's starting to open up a bit for Southampton. I also think Rasmus Ankerson was reflective on the club's part in the situation that they're in right now. You know, he did say when it comes to results, it's kind of you know it's decisions that we take. It's it's everything. It's not just you know the manager and tactics and performance on a Saturday. And there, I, I listened to those words and kind of thought, well, yeah, I mean, if you if you do take a radical approach to recruitment that includes 
going for loads of players who are sort of under 23s, who haven't got a lot of experience, young players, and not a massively deep squad either. You know, they have recruited in January, but the first half of the season, a few injuries and you were really, you you know, they were really stretched Southampton. Hasn't helped. You know, that just simply hasn't helped. And um, maybe there was a part of them thinking, well, we've done a bit of recruitment in in January. Let's see if these players can bet in. Let's see if they can help us. Five or six players. Um, and and a, a little bit more experience as well with that. Maybe we can pull ourselves out of it. Now, there hasn't been a massively instant upturn in fortunes. Um, but it will take time. Coaching does take time. Um, whether Nathan Jones gets that or not, I'm not sure. Particularly, Tom if they lose at the weekend to Wolves in front of their home fans, it could get toxic. They basically have to win. Yeah, definitely. I think obviously lots can be said about the uh, excitement near the top of the table and there's a Merseyside derby, but you could make a big case for this being the biggest game of the weekend, um, certainly for Southampton, but also Wolves you know, showing improvement all the time. It'll be a real, really tough test. And that'll be, that'll add to the frustration for Southampton fans, I think, because they'll look at, Wolves, obviously a completely different club, probably with a bit more financial backing, but they'll look and go, well, they sat their manager, look at them now, look what they got. Um, that looks more like a plan coming together. Maybe, maybe we'll see the opposite, who knows? But I, I, we talked before on previous pods about Nathan Jones and his demeanour. Um, and I mentioned, you know, modern management being so much about a kind of PR exercise a lot of the time. Yes, it matters what happens on the pitch, but it matters so much. We talk about it so much, don't we? Social media, clapping the fans at the end of the game. He really hasn't done himself any favours, I don't think. And I know Gregor would say, well, that's just his personality. That's the way he works. And that's fine. But I think when you've got a shot at a higher level and you've got to think, right, you know, a lot of people will be looking at me going, who's this random bloke from Luton? Ultimately, that's what a lot of people will be doing. He, he hasn't helped himself in that respect um, with just getting the fans on side. Because you say, Hugh, at home in front of their fans, we've talked a lot about Everton and how wonderful their fans can be at Goodison Park, even in difficult times in terms of getting behind them. And we saw that against Arsenal. Um, they responded, even though I'm sure a lot of them maybe were like, oh God, I didn't want Sean Dyche. They massively responded to that. So it'll be fascinating to see where Jones lies at the minute with those fans because they're going to need them behind them on Saturday at home uh, to a team that they really need to beat, ultimately. Um, you look at their next three games, they've got Wolves at home, then they go away to Chelsea, so that should be an easy three points. Um, joking Chelsea fans, of course. Uh, and then they're away at Leeds. And you do start to think if they don't pick up points in those games, then Southampton are at the point where which we discussed a while ago. And I remember Gregor saying it on a previous pod where Jones might be one of those managers that comes in and is out before the end of the season because then it'll be, okay, we're a bit cut adrift. Do we make a change and try and stay in the Premier League? Or, as you say, Hugh, is the plan we need a young manager who can coach and we've brought in these young players, even if it means going down to try and come back up again, we stick with the plan. But they could be facing those kind of questions in a couple of games' time if they don't turn it around. It would be very interesting to see whether Ankerson and Sport, Sport Republic did roll the dice to try and maintain the, the Premier League status or not. Like that would be a test of their process. As you say, if they don't get results in the next couple of weeks, then that will be tested to its limits. And I think if he's not, you know, if he survives that, then probably have the opportunity to take them back up. But, I, you know, I'm never one of those people that people will say, you know, have, have, they, have they hired him with one view on potentially bring... No one thinks, no one thinks like that about 
about is you'd be okay to bring us up next season if we went down. They, no one thinks like that, but it might be it might be that that's his job because they're heading that way. He'll need the support of his fans, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I hope they get the three points at the weekend just so Nathan Jones can turn around, punch the air while his team probably still get booed, to be perfectly honest, because they're just not happy with him. There is something uh, certainly not right. There's no relationship that's been forged and he definitely needs to work on that. Wolves uh, forging a great relationship under Julian Lopetegui. Uh, 10 points from the last six games. They've just beaten Liverpool 3-0. They've got Bournemouth the weekend after this as well. So the next two games, if Wolves can win them both, would be absolutely crucial in terms of their survival. They're playing pretty well at the moment. So huge game for Southampton. Very tricky fixture this weekend. Tricky 1-2 at home for Arsenal this weekend. They host Brentford. They need to get an immediate response, Arsenal, after their defeat at Everton. Or there's going to be talk of their title challenge collapsing because they face Manchester City next Wednesday in the Premier League, okay? So they they basically need the three points here. I mean, defeat, back-to-back defeats to take into that City game is something they, they can't really contemplate. Brentford as well, extending their unbeaten run to nine matches with their win over Southampton last weekend. And that's their longest in the top flight in 87 years. So a positive moment for Brentford going away to the Emirates. How big, Gregor, is this weekend for Arsenal? It's really big, yeah. And as you say, there have already been references to the defeat at the start of last season and how how they were bullied. Brentford can bully teams. You know, there's a whole kind of narrative around Brentford is how you know smart they are in their recruitment, how intelligent they are as a football club and they're a pretty bruising side. <laughs> I think they're the closest James Gearbrand was writing a piece recently about, you know, uh Sean Dyche coming in and the kind of it's it's a good thing for the Premier League to have a bit of variety and, you know, Sean Dyche is someone who plays from back to front very quickly and he, he said that until Dyche has re- you know returned to the Premier League, Brentford are the are the team who play from back to front the quickest, play the most long balls. They they have Ivan Tony. They have a, a huge strength to utilise, and he can bully defenders. And it will not be an easy task. And as Tony was saying last uh, last week, you know, following on from the Everton game, it's going to be another another bruising encounter where they have to they have to impose their style. Arsenal have to impose their style on on the opposition and and uh, get back to doing what they do best. So it's also a couple of defeats on the spin. A third would make it. It would undoubtedly affect. It would be a. It would affect their confidence, and that's not what Arsenal need at this stage of the season. Tom, how difficult is this fixture? Um, it's certainly difficult. I would say we've just talked about home crowds and Southampton. I think obviously, even though uh, they've had a little blip, the Arsenal fans will still be firmly behind their team. One thing that is interesting to me that slightly leads on from the things Gregor points Gregor made in terms of about Brentford and the, how they can bully you is that I thought watching the Everton game that. Dare I say, Arsenal lacked a bit of their intensity. They they might have even looked a little bit tired. Dare I say it? You know, I thought with some of Arteta's changes as well in the second half, there was an element of almost self-preservation as much as um, you know with with making these changes to try and get back in the game with the players that he brought off, senior players. So I think with that kind of the way Brentford tend to tackle the bigger teams. They'll need Arsenal will need to show a return to that kind of intensity, um, the speed of play, the pressing to win the ball back, which was one of the things when I think back to the 
um, game at Brentford where Arsenal won. That was the first time. It was obviously incredibly early in the season, but I thought, wow, this is this Arsenal team have gone up a notch. Um, they were winning the ball back so quickly. They never gave Brentford a minute, and this was the same Brentford who had, you know, steamrolled Manchester United early in the season. And we then thought, wow, this Arsenal team are really at it. So that to me is going to be the most significant thing. You know, it doesn't need to be a superstar 4-0, 3-0 win. If it's a 2-1 win, but they show a level of intensity and creating chances as well, which was something that was lacking against Everton. So, yes, it's a difficult game. I would I would think that the most important thing that Mikel Arteta will want to see would be a return to that intense, intense way of playing. And the fans can help with that, I'm sure. It's going to be a good game this weekend, I think. Um, Brentford, just positivity. And obviously, under Thomas Frank, always have a plan it is a tough game for Arsenal. An early goal, something to settle the nerves would be really important. And we'll look ahead to their game against Manchester City on Monday. But, um, you know, as I say, they can't really contemplate losing back-to-back games to take into the game against City, where all the pressure will ramp up against them in a negative sense if they don't get all three points this weekend. So, uh, fingers crossed for their Premier League title hopes. Uh, Far from that for Chelsea. They go to West Ham this weekend. West Ham... Got a big draw up at Newcastle last weekend. Um, they're, they're becoming themselves a little bit more in the in recent weeks, I think. Uh, maybe that's to do with, I guess, a less intense schedule. Let's call it that with no European football. Um, Chelsea, they've had another decent rest. They need to mould their team under Graham Potter at the moment. They had 12 days rest before their draw against Fulham. That was a goalless draw, of course. They've had seven days rest now before this one. How much do Chelsea need to win this? Because we've almost settled into the story on Chelsea, which is basically, you know, Graham Potter's going to take time to prove if he's good enough for the job. Maybe we've written them off a little bit in terms of their top four uh, hopes for this season, or at least chances. Um, Where do they sit right now in terms of, I guess, the trajectory that they're on for you, Tom? Do we need to see more from Chelsea now? I think we do. I think the fans, we've talked a lot about fans in the last uh, 10 minutes of the podcast. I think the fans would certainly like to see a a hint of, okay, I can see where we're going. Um, It's obviously incredibly early days, but at the same time, if you were to say contrast that with Mikel Arteta, a manager who was given a lot of time and has reaped the benefits, Graham Potter, the difference is that Chelsea has spent an enormous amount of money. So with that comes an added pressure. Um, to, to see a little bit of a, a little glimmer um, of, of where we're going here. But it won't be easy. As you say, I think I completely agree with you. I think West Ham under David Moyes are showing a bit more of the West Ham and David Moyes style that we've seen. Um, that was a really good draw that they got um, at Newcastle. They defended brilliantly in that second half. And that will be something for them to build on. And I'm pretty sure fans of both teams will be thinking this as they listen. West Ham at home to Chelsea is an absolute classic home win for West Ham in the last few years. There's all, they always seem to put in a performance against Chelsea at home um, and have got some big results and have put in some big performances even when they've not got results. So I would imagine early kickoff uh, on telly that this will be a very, very difficult game for Chelsea. But you would hope that maybe Graham Potter, continuing to have lots of time with these players, can maybe get a bit of a spark going maybe get some of those attacking players firing because the problem has been of late that it's just looked a bit drab and a bit flat, which when you've spent all that money is not what fans want to see. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Um, I went to the game against Fulham 
and there were positives. There is just no real cutting edge for Chelsea. So to see Joao Felix back in the Chelsea shirt might be very important because, you know, if that area can be resolved, they look a decent side and I think the victories will come, but um, there is just no real goal-scoring potential. Um, Noni Madueke came off the bench in that game, looked very, very lively. Mikhailo Mudrik hooked at half-time. Uh, didn't look very lively, but again, these players have had a little bit more time to get acclimatised, if you like. And and there's a lot of good young players. Young players can make leaps, you know, over a short space of time. So um, it'll be intriguing to see how Chelsea play. But um, uh, is it too is it too early to totally give up on them in terms of the top four? I would say so. Not not in a, not in any kind of bad. Or- malicious way I just think it's too early with all the play because the, the the counter argument to my own that I put forward of they've signed a load of players so they need to see a, a, a kind of bit of a return is that it is an incredible amount of players and whilst you want to see bits of spark here and there I'm not I can't see them putting together a long run of wins say um, the, the other factor is that the current top four look pretty strong um, and I would say of the teams below that top four I would think Tottenham have probably got more about them than Chelsea, despite Chelsea's signings to kind of make a run and challenge that top four at the minute. But the top four at the moment just looks incredibly strong. And I I don't know whether I can see any of them faltering and dropping out of it at this stage. So I I think it is, it's a safe bet, I would say. Clip this up for the end of the season. It's a safe bet to say that Chelsea won't finish in the top four. Okay, finally this weekend, a Monday night in the Premier League. It's the Merseyside derby, which of course... Every match at the moment, huge for Everton in terms of where they are in the Premier League. Liverpool not playing well either. Four wins in 12, taking on a revitalised Everton side under Sean Dyche, who beat Arsenal in his opening game in charge. Um, Well, this one's, I guess, just simple. How do you see this game going between these two sides? Uh, It's going to be really, really intriguing. Gregor? It's extremely hard to call what you're going to get from Liverpool. I mean, we expect them to, to turn a corner each week, well I certainly do because I still think fundamentally although there are huge huge issues at the moment, they had an extremely rocky patch and made the, made the top four uh, a couple of seasons ago and I just think that with the quality they have it's it's natural that they're going to start climbing the table at some point Merseyside Derby team uh, Everton side buoyed by the result uh, last time out and Sean Dyche's arrival they're going to make it very difficult for them the main thing for Liverpool is that they stop gifting the opposition goals and giving themselves such a mountain to climb because some of the some of the goals they've been conceding have been absolutely calamitous. And if Everton are gifted a goal and they get something to hold on to, then they will be, you know, in their element doing so. Look, it's not an easy thing to say. You say, stop cutting out the errors. I've said it time and time and again the last few weeks. Jurgen Klopp comes on afterwards and says that these these things aren't allowed. They're not possible. Well. He's right. They need to stop because it's it just sucks the the energy and the confidence out of the team. You see it, and makes life so much harder. So Liverpool need to stop these errors first and foremost. And then I believe they have enough quality in their team to to start climbing the table. But who knows? We've been seeing it for weeks. I don't. It's just remarkable. Some of the goals are conceded. Greg is talking about goals there, Hugh. I don't know about you, but. Liverpool, Everton, Derby, Monday night football, big game for both teams, new manager, under pressure manager. It's got nil-nil written all over it, hasn't it? I mean, it's like, 
It's it usually rubbish, na- the Merseyside derby. Yeah, nailed oh. on. Absolutely nailed on. Nil-nil. Stick your fiver on it right now. Do a double. Chelsea not to make the Champions League and this game to be nil-nil. You heard it here first. Uh, I'd, but, but in but it, all seriousness, part of that um, slightly flippant prediction is based on Sean Dyche and Everton. This is so well set up for them, isn't it? Having had that morale, hugely morale-boosting win um, against Arsenal, they can now go into this game. Of course, it's still important, but they've got the backbone of that. Now that you know, you could just see them getting a point um, and putting in a, a performance. And he's clearly already galvanised the players, and we've had a, they've had another week to work with them. And as Gregor says, there's so much of a spotlight on Liverpool with their fans, the media, and probably Jurgen Klopp sitting there going, "Right, when are you gonna? When are you gonna turn up? When are you gonna perform?" So I, you know, you could see Everton getting a point, and I wouldn't be surprised if it was nil-nil. Well, it's basically the worst result that that could come for Liverpool, beaten at home by your huge local rivals who are threatened by relegation. I mean, at this point in time, in terms of the bad run that Liverpool are on, this is the last thing that they would want. So there's going to be nerves from their perspective um, and their fans a little bit as well. And almost Sean Dyche will give the message to his his team that you've got absolutely nothing to lose. I mean, it's Liverpool away from home. Just go and make your fans proud. Work yourself into the ground. Be smart. Keep it tight. And you just wouldn't be surprised if they, they nick something on the counter-attack. They managed against Arsenal to continually get numbers of bodies into the box. Dominic Calvert-Lewin um, just won all of those flick-ons as well. So if you go direct, I mean, again, Liverpool's defence against Wolves, absolutely shocking. If if Calvert-Lewin manages to to draw a performance out like he has, you know, of 18 months, two years ago when he was in the England squad, we were talking about big moves to big clubs... Um, then you wouldn't be surprised, really, if Everton managed to cause a shock here. Um, but again, will it be entertaining? Maybe, maybe, maybe this time, because um, neither side is particularly good. And at times that can make for a fantastic football match. So I will cross my fingers for the three-all draw on Monday night. Tom Clark, uh, Gregor Robertson, thank you very much for joining me. Our thanks to Jonathan Northcroft once again and to you for listening. It's been a busy week for news, hasn't it, in the world of football. Uh, More to come, I'm sure, over the weekend. We'll see you again on Monday. In the meantime, if you want more of our great journalism in The Times, make sure you download The Times app or you can subscribe to the game. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We'll see you soon.